um, from our vacation. I'm sure you all enjoyed your times away as well. And it seems like everyone is happy, healthy. And then we had a covenant child born into the church this week. So it seems like all things are on the upswing for 2019 as we come back and then begin to worship together again this year. And to no surprise, we are still going to be in 2019. We're still going to be in Genesis 1 through 11 for a season of time. And Adam Cronbush, or as is typed in the bulletin, is suggesting that we're going to get through five verses, but we're not. We're going to get through maybe one. But you get, by reading all five, you get the idea of what we're dealing with. We're going to come back as is important because we really don't know um, a, a lot about Eve. Um, and perhaps we think we do because we know what happened with Eve. So it seems like we, we just, you know, everything from this point forward from in redemptive history, from the moment that Eve was tempted and then fell away in the eating of the fruit and then the sharing of it with her husband. And it kind of that tells the story of our lives today. And so when we think back on Adam and Eve as individuals, we, we kind of think in terms of we know a lot about what was significant about them, so on and so forth, and then we move on. But in reality, we really don't know a lot as far as the biblical narratives go. At this point, we, we know the tragedy, but then life kind of moves on, and, and the, the narratives uh, shrink. They, they, in other words, they pick up momentum and move quicker. Um, again, for instance, uh, just to start out, there, we talked in our small group this week, a discussion kind of was prompted from our study time about the idea of the animal skins. Um, that, that's a really fast-moving thing in, in the story. W- 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 what did they think about the animal skins? What did God instruct in the animal skins? What was told to them about the animal skins? What do we know? And, and the next thing, we move on into our text right here, um, and you have their expulsion from the garden. Then you have our text that begins, and uh, we have the offerings of Cain and Abel. So quickly, right? Boom, 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 boom. A matter of five verses, and, and Cain is old enough to be coming with the fruits of the ground. So you see, the, the, the pace really picks up, um, and, and there's pieces and bits and pieces there that we see evidence of or fruit of, um, like the bringing of the offerings, but we really don't know uh, pedagogically, instructionally, catechetically. How they got to that place to know to do those things, um, what exactly the significance was of sacrifice and how they understood it and so forth. So I, I want to consider this morning um, Eve a little bit as we see her here and tease out from verses 1 and 2, really. Um, and then we'll see uh, next week uh, where uh, it goes from here with Adam and Eve and the interaction of Cain and Abel. And we'll see something of a profile there uh, as well. Um, with Eve, the story begins, right, with a sense of promise. Right away, you, you see this text here is a response um, to uh, the curse. And, and the curse has mixed within the curse, it has this language of blessing, right? And so when we move to the text this morning of chapter 4, it's really going to be an evidence of their reception, that is, Adam and Eve's reception of the mercy and the blessing of God as our first parents. And with the expectation of God's blessing upon them, um, even though it was a cursed context, right, this is what's going to occur to you now. 
and as Dan spoke just momentarily uh, a few moments ago, the, the idea of child rearing um, and, and the concept of having, pro having progeny, and then the, the, then the, the difficulty of delivering uh, a, a, an offspring or a baby into the earth. And, and then the idea that it's not just going to be a single child that will be born in your home, but it's plural in the text. You will have multiplication, very hard difficulty in the rearing or the giving of children. So you have this language of blessing and mercy in the concept of children, but yet it's in the context of cursing and difficulty. But you see, the very first act of faith in the text uh, is where Adam renames his wife, right? You, you saw that last week, and Dan has covered it sufficiently. I just want you to appreciate it as we move to verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. But you, but you see, after this language of, you're going to die in, in 19 uh, of chapter 3, there's verse 20. The man changed his wife's name to Eve. You, you see, why? Why did he make that movement? After hearing, you are going to die, then he moves to name her life or mother of the living, because embedded within the punishment, Adam is hearing, yes, cursing and difficulty, but embedded or enmeshed within the word of punishment is the promise of God's presence. You see, he will here accompany them. He will strengthen them. He will support them in the fulfilling of their calling. For their, their calling remains the same. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Exercise dominion over it. And it's not necessarily a given that Adam would turn, right, and, and name his wife something very promising, like the mother of all the living. It's not a given. Okay, we might skirt right past it because the narratives move so quickly, but it's not a given that that would be his necessary response in the moment, right? It's an act of faith. It's not robotic. Well, of course, he's going to, the very next move in the narrative, the very next move in the story is he's going to say something promising. God says something very difficult to him. No, remember, we already had a failure of faith in the garden. And now we have a fallen man and a fallen woman. And here the word of the Lord goes forward. And, and we might assume he's going to respond this way. No, it's an act of faith, the very first act of repentance and faith we see in the text. I hear the word of the Lord. I believe it to be absolutely true. I am in the wrong. I need to repent and believe. And so at this point in the story, is we have the reader, that is the people of God, as we read the text, at this point we're through three chapters and we simply know Eve as woman. That, that, that's what we know. We, we know Adam here and, and man. We know Adam, but we simply know the woman as the woman of the text. Because why? Well, because she was taken from man. We have that information. She was taken from man, and then she was given unto man to be his direct, empowering help. But now, post-fall in the act of Adam's faith, the woman will be known as Eve. That is, as Herman Bovink, a Reformed theologian, Herman Bovink says, because the woman gives way to the mother. 
you see, this is, this is how Adam is conceiving of the word of the Lord and receiving it in faith. And, and, and that, that word of the Lord that is, that is birthing and strengthening and, and bringing him in faith. That shapes how he then views his helper and his wife, his gift from the Lord. So, so that woman, your woman, for you came from man. And at this point in mercy and grace, woman gives way to mother. And then her assistance to the man is now rendered as the one who bears and nurtures children. This is the unification, the the experience that Adam and Eve are coming together for. It's the renaming. She she went from woman, young woman, to, to mother. She's going to have children. How do you know that? How do you know that? Because the word of the Lord has said it. So notice how chapter 4 then unfolds after the naming of of, of woman to mother, uh, of Eve, into the life of she who will give uh, life, or the mother of all living. Um, As the text unfolds here, uh, post-paradise, we could conceive that now we're post-paradise because you see, um, nonetheless, again, enmeshed within difficulty is promise, but indeed there is difficulty. By the time we get done with verse 24, he drove the man out. And, and with him, again, as one flesh, the woman with him. So, so mother and, and father, conceivably, are driven out. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now we are outside the garden and we're entering into post-paradise life. And that covers the entire way we're supposed to read chapter 4 and the birthing of a child. Notice um, first, as we move then into chapter 4, I want you to kind of conceive of, if you, if you could uh, mentally uh, draw yourself an umbrella that's open. Okay, so, so you, you've got the handle coming down, you've got the umbrella out, it's full order, it's open. And then what you're going to do is consider that the umbrella uh, on the arc of your mental umbrella is the promise of God. And then you're going to take chapter 4 as an item here, and you're going to bring it up underneath the umbrella. And so that when you read chapter 4, you're reading it in light of the umbrella that is over top of it. That's how you're receiving the information of chapter 4 by item, is in context of this promise of God that is being given. Because that is how Adam and Eve are expressing their faith. Their thoughts of chapter 4's information that we possess, their thoughts are informed. Their comments are informed by the promise of God. Look at chapter 3 just briefly, and I, I won't re-preach uh, all, all chapter 3. Uh, uh, we just have to touch on this idea so that you see it in chapter 4 as we progress. Because this, this is what she herself is thinking, and, and then I'll move right into the naming in chapter 4, the naming of the baby that is born. But it's all informed by what has occurred in chapter 3. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring, which again, the point of that is she will have or possess offspring between your offspring and her offspring. And then there's a word of promise to the woman's offspring. As he speaks of cursing to the serpent, he speaks of deliverance to the woman regarding her seed, her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the woman, hearing this information about her offspring, then he turns to the woman. Now the woman is sitting, she's hearing promise. She's hearing a word of what seems to be great conflict, but a word of deliverance. So we're going to have enmity. There is trouble now. There's enmity, and it looks like it's going to go on a while because there's language now of offspring. Of whatever the woman understood of offspring and deliverance, she gathered something. For God turned to her directly, exactly how it all went down and everything, we don't know. But we have this in the text. To the woman, then he said, I will surely multiply your pain. With regards to what? With regard to childbearing. You see? You're going to have children. And then it goes on, in pain, I'm saying you're going to have pain, in reference to what, childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, plural. And then we jump down to chapter 4. That's why I want you to know those texts right before you read. We, we, let's just do that, right? So, so we're in 16, and, and let's read the text together. I, I will surely multiply your pain in reference to childbearing. In other words, I'm saying in pain, you will bring forward children. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name, the woman now Eve. Because of this, because she was the mother of all living. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, notice the language. That, that, that's why you have an umbrella In in chapter 4 now, you're reading it inside the umbrella of the promise of God because this is Eve's response. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You see, the promise of deliverance is what is being proclaimed here by Eve. It is front and center that an offspring will be born to you that will bring deliverance. Think about that for Eve. The word of promise, and then a baby is born. And then she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You see, for Eve, the very fact of progeny, not the idea, but the very fact Fact, right? She conceived, but then notice she bore. She, she gave birth to a son. She gave birth to Cain. So the very fact of progeny, the reality of a child being born, is unto Eve the sign of the promise unfolding. 
Thus Eve calls him Cain. Which, if we look at the etymology of the word Cain, like where does Cain come from? What does Cain symbolize? As we know, uh, for my family, our, our children's name mean absolutely nothing. We called them names we liked and thought, well, well, I might. We really tested it by calling out. Would you want to say that for the next, you know, presumptively 35, 40 years? Yeah, I think I, it has a good ring to it. Let's go with it. It, it was less, what does that mean? And let's meditate on that. You need to fulfill this character because we called you Daniel. Um, less of that for us. But if we look at the Old Testament text, it's, it's full of that. It, 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 it's, it's full of um, uh, import in, in the terminology of a name, the etymology of a name. That, that, that this meant something, that you, you were this. There's expectation there. There's disappointment there, to be honest with you. There's language of disappointment. Oh, you know, that's the kid. You know, expectations are low. The name is kind of low. That's kind of in play culturally. So if we look at the term Cain and and, and just simply handle it, not, not overly analyze it, but simply look at it from the vantage point of promise and birth and reality of a man being born, a child being born, we name him Cain. Why? Because the term or name Cain, it has its roots in the language of acquire or to possess. In other words, if we take the, the name Cain, notice how the text works. So Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and she bore Cain. What, what do you mean Cain? Well, well the, the clarity of what it means to be Cain is demonstrated in the pronouncement. He's Cain. What does that mean? Well, it means I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have acquired. You see, functionally here, Eve, in having birth to a son, In light of the promise, you will have children, and and, and your offspring will crush the serpent. Functionally, here as she gives birth, Eve exclaims, God is fulfilling the promise. For I have acquired, or I have caned a man with his help. You see, think of, for a moment, just think of the overwhelming difficulty upon Adam and Eve at this time. Again, the narratives move so quickly at this point, and maybe we would lose sight of it if we don't just consider reality. And we, we don't just read the narratives like the small little short stories. But, 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 but true, it's the history of the church, the history of God's people, the true and genuine history of the world, the origins of the world. Think about it from a human perspective. We don't know the duration of time between the curse and conception. We just don't. You know, it's, it's uh, somewhat, not to be crass, but it's probably somewhat unrealistic that right upon hearing of the curse, they went and had wedded bliss. It's probably somewhat, it would be maybe an inappropriate response or, or something that would be like, well, it's not that they immediately decided to attempt to have children the very next moment, right? But, but you hear it in the text, the, 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 guarded from the tree of life. Now Adam knew his wife Eve. You think, well, there's realistically probably some duration of time between those events. And if we consider life outside the garden was radically different, right, than life in the garden. 
And, and even at which point then they did have uh, 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 sex with one another. At which point, how, how often it is with the human experience, conception doesn't happen the very next moment. Sometimes it's for a season of time and so on and so forth. We simply just don't know the difficulty they were under. Not to mention that if we just took it as simple and we said, yes, indeed, they went and had sexual intercourse of, of, upon after shortly leaving the curse scenario. We have at least, though, at that point, right, nine months of challenge and difficulty. Again, think of life outside the garden for Adam and Eve, where they were so harmoniously in the place of perfection. Now they are in a place of creational discord. Newfound hardships that they had never experienced. You, you just, it's hard for us to experientially grasp because we've never known life without hardship. But they did. They knew a perfect, harmonious context. And even if you only had nine months outside of that difficulty, that would be an extremely difficult nine months. There was a newfound antagonistic relationship or predation relationship between man and animal that had never existed. Right? And you go back to Adam's role uh, uh, over the garden where he's naming the animal types. And, and he has this harmonious relationship with created order. And now it is one of predation and danger. What do you think about the disharmonious relationship between man and ground? Again, whatever his experience was of the fruit of the garden, in the garden, it wasn't what his experience is now post-curse, that you indeed will have labor, and by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth produce, man and the atmosphere. You know, new, new weather patterns that were not present in the garden. This was all extreme compared to their days in paradise. And it's this difficulty, if we could enter into it, even by imagination, and seek to understand what it would have been like, it makes so much more sense to the thought that Eve now thinks that Cain is the redeemer. Oh, how they longed to have what was wrong made right, even if it was nine months only. How they waited for the promised offspring. And now, behold, a baby is being born to you. Notice further the curious element of the text. I'm, I'm sure you think of it when you read it, but this curious element within this text that helps explain some of the dynamics going on is Eve referring to her, new, her newborn son as a man. Do, do you see? Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and, and she bore Cain. She, she acquired. She bore acquirement. She's saying, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Now, I, I don't know. We'll be visiting uh, Kristen here shortly. Uh, perhaps some of you have already and so forth. But I've visited a number of people who have had babies, and it's been a boy. And I've yet to hear a mother refer to her newborn baby as man. Like, I have a man. They, they, don't, they, they don't typically say, you know, is it a man or a woman? Is it, you know, is it, a, is it a boy or a girl? It's a little more tender. It's a little bit more appropriate to the context. Um, uh, you know, 
my buddies teased me, you know, of some measure of accomplishment by having a boy for my first, you know, the, the, the regular jostling and teasing. Oh, you did it, you know, you have a man child. But in all seriousness and reality, nobody talks about your newfound son as a man. So why here in the birth of their first baby boy would we expect Eve to speak in language that matters for our understanding to say, I have acquired a man? Because the reason for her speech of calling the acquired one a man is because her thoughts of Cain are completely anchored in the promises of deliverance. You see, she immediately speaks of the baby as an embattled man. In her mind, Cain is the man who will be ready to do battle against the serpent and provide all the deliverance desired to the people of God. I've gotten a man. He will take us back to Eden. Luther comments helpfully here. He says, quote, It is as if she was saying, I have gotten the man of God who will conduct himself more properly and with greater good fortune than my Adam and I conducted ourselves in paradise. For this reason, listen to Luther's comment. I think that's exactly the dynamics in the text. She's looking at Cain. You will have children and offspring. Your offspring will rise and destroy the dragon. This will occur. Adam knew his wife. They bore a son, a man, to do what God had pledged. She sees the man or the baby functionally as a redeemer and a deliverer. Back to Luther's comment, because it's exactly the language of the text. It is as if she is saying, I have gotten the man of God who will conduct himself more properly and with greater good fortune than my Adam and I conducted ourselves in paradise. For this reason, I do not call him my son, but he is the man of God who was promised and provided by God. You see, because Eve was trusting in the promises of God laid out for her after the fall, she faithfully but mistakenly believed Cain to be the one about whom the Lord had given his promise for deliverance. Doesn't that make the heartbreak of the Cain and Abel narrative all the deeper? She had nothing but promise and hope for Cain. Believed him to be the deliverer, and he will turn out to be a murderer. There's a powerful lesson there, and we'll consider it next week. But I want you to consider with me two things that we learn here about Eve in the profile of this woman that we really know a lot about in one sense, but we really know very little about in another. I want you to see her profile expressed here in chapter 4 just briefly. There are two things I want us to consider. Number one, when we conceive of Eve, and, and we read the text that Adam knew her, 
and that her name is the mother of the living, and she knew that. And she laid hold of verse 15 and 16, that she'd have children born, that, 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 that one would come from her, that would take them back and make what was wrong. It would make it right. And then she then, after she conceives and she bears out this child, she says, I have gotten a man, not just simply by multiplication, but I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Specifically from the Lord, he promised. And I have gotten. And these two things are related. First of two things I want you to consider when you think of that language, when you look into that profile, is that he is a woman of faith. Everything about this opening scene reveals Eve to be a saintly woman who believes the promise of God for future salvation. You see, it isn't that I just had a baby. I have a man who has promised me and going to make everything right. How do you know things are going to be made right? God told me. She's a woman of great faith. And it's in this sense, she's a profile for all of us. A saintly woman for us to consider. A woman of faithful obedience. Right? If you, if you track through your own life and, and how the cycle of, uh, of ongoing repentance and restoration is to be had, that the life of the Reformed or the life of the Christian is to be a life of repentance. You're not to conceive of your life as a moment of repentance, but it's a life of repentance. What does that look like? But we see it here with Eve, don't we? She sinned against God, of which we all know very well. She clearly repented of that sin, for she hasn't persisted in it. Her faith in the word of the Lord that was given her has ascended and has come to rest upon him fully for forgiveness and the promise of salvation. Isn't it the same with you? Once again, I repent. I rest assured of your promises that are given me that if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness, refreshing me once again under the promise of deliverance and salvation. How do you know that he's faithful? How do you know that he's just? How do you know that he will refresh? Because he promises to do so. I have faith in the word of the Lord. And then in Eve, it doesn't just stop with some idea of repentance and faith. But the point of chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, is that her life proceeds in obedient faith. Otherwise, she'd just say, I had, a, I, I had a baby. And she moves on. Moses didn't write it that way. Because that's not the story being told. She had a man. Because she believed him to be deliverer. Because she believed the promises of God. Indeed, perhaps it is naive and ill-informed at some level. It is absolute and unwavering in faith. But unfortunately, as it goes, that's what I want to draw your attention to in the second thing. Not only was she a woman of faith, she wouldn't ever utter anything else uh, uh, if she wanted to prove herself to be faithful. But unfortunately, her faith is also, number two, her faith is also self-interpreted. This is very dangerous. 
and it proves to be such in the text with Adam and Eve both. Eve's faith, though it be rich and absolute, though it be unwavering and obedient, it is also at a certain level self-interpreted. You see, that is without a definite word of revelation to Eve. Through her own strength of wisdom and her own thought of opinion, she pronounces, rushes headlong forward ahead of the promises of God and pronouncing Cain to be God's instrument of deliverance. Her faith is sincere and eager, unwavering and obedient, but has that Achilles heel that all of us seem to share in. This sense of self-interpreting or self-referential faith. Look at the text. Again, Adam knew, she conceived, she bore, acquired. Saying, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. I just want to read just forward just a little bit into the text to give you a little indication of where the text then goes as we get to peer into a little bit of the challenges with parenting and the idea of family dynamics and the hope of an offspring. To Eve, it is ill-informed, self-referential. I want to go back and I want things to be the way they ought to have been in first place. And that sense of self-reference and that sense of self-interpretation then gives way to improperly assigning God's delivering hand. And that's what happens here if you look at verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, there's an instructional comment here for all of us as we begin to write the profiles of the two brothers. Now, Abel, just to clarify, was a keeper of the sheep. So even at this point, you talk about the speed of a narrative. At this point, we're two verses in post-fall, and there's already domesticated livestock. So we're moving fast. There's a lot of life being lived in these short verses. But he was a keeper of the sheep. Now notice what Cain did. He was a worker of the ground. The language intimating that he followed in his father's footsteps. But you see, the language of, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord just like his father in some respects. Reveals Cain to be the hope that Eve is resting upon. And it is, as we know, and will be made evident to Eve, a false hope. And here I would just say to each of us that we see the danger because it's very much like our lives. The danger of self-referential and self-interpreting the events, people, and places of providence in our lives. Again, when we see this wrongful assessment where Cain is the man of God and we find out that Cain is a murderer, where we see that Cain will rise to be the favored son All of the accomplishments are resting on his shoulder from self-interpreting analysis. We see that Eve is in great error. And so the word of caution to each of us on different levels and in different ways that 
consider your circumstances for a moment. Some of you in difficulty, what you consider to be great difficulty, some in great ease, and everything in between, relationally, occupationally, geographically, whatever you perceive the challenge to be, when you take upon yourself the title of ultimate interpreter of events, people, and places in your life, you are sure to err. So in conclusion then for our time this morning, so as to not skip over the wonderful woman Eve, Eve's faith is instructed to us in two ways. Number one, absolute faith in the promises of God is richly rewarding. You see, sure, she here over-assesses, wrongfully assigns, came to be the next great hope that's going to be their deliverer, the promised one, who heartbreakingly turns out to murder his brother. But in faith they proceed, and after Abel has passed, some season of time goes by, the maturation of faith continues. They birth another son. His name is Seth. And the language of verse 25 of chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, called his name Seth, for she, that is Eve, said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. A godly inheritance given to Eve. And we learn through the story of Eve absolute faith in the promises of God is richly rewarding. Number two, and this is in conclusion, number two, the profile in Eve's faith that is instructed for us is the providence of God must be prayerfully weighed, not self-referentially interpreted. You see, we mustn't interpret the works of God in light of the conclusions we want. How often do we do that? We have a conclusion that we want to keep. We have a narrative story about our life that we don't want intruded upon. And if we really want to protect it, we'll find a way to get there. But what damage that will do to our faith in the process. This is not faith but is manipulation. Don't kid yourself. It's your own confirmation bias. When you interpret all the events, people, and places in your life just according to the narrative that you're seeking to protect. We are sure to err, for the Lord cannot be manipulated. So then how do we interpret life rightly? That's my last comment this morning. How then do we interpret providence, life, people, and places, how do we do so through faith as Eve did and do so maturely so that our faith matures and is rich? Paul says this, I conclude, in everything by prayer and supplication 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. No, it's got to be. I just had a baby. You promised we're going to have a baby, and this has got to be the man. This has got to be the man of God. No. Lean not on your own understanding. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word.